in her latest book, Penelope Winslow, Plymouth Colony First Lady, Reimagining a Life, Michelle Marchetti Coughlin blends historical records with material culture, conveying Winslow's world in all its rich complexity. As the wife of Plymouth Colony Governor, Governor Josiah Winslow, Penelope Pelham Winslow was one of the most powerful women in Plymouth history. Yet she, like most of her female contemporaries, have been largely forgotten. She authored or is mentioned in just a few surviving documents. However, a wealth of physical evidence survives to tell her story, from homes and possessions to archaeological artifacts. These items also offer insight into the world of Plymouth Colony's women. Michelle Marchetti Coughlin is an independent scholar and author of One Colonial Woman's World, The Life and Writings of Mehetaba... I knew I'd screw this name up. Uh, Chandler Coit. Coughlin has been a Massachusetts Humanities Scholar in residence and recently guest curated an exhibit at Pilgrim Hall Museum, Pathfinders, Women of Plymouth. She serves on the board of the Ad Abigail Adams Birthplace and as a museum administrator at Boston's Gibson House. Please join me in warmly welcoming her. Well, thank you all for coming here today. And I want to begin by thanking Victoria and Elsa and Mary for um, welcoming me here back to the Boston Athenaeum. It's a pleasure to be here. And I started studying early American women because I really feel they continue to be significantly underrepresented in the telling of America's story. And if we're not hearing about how half the population shaped the development of this country, then we're really not getting an accurate or full picture of how the country developed. So when I first heard about Penelope Winslow a few years ago, um, being that she was a member of the English gentry and married to Plymouth Colony Governor Josiah Winslow, I was really surprised that she hadn't come to my attention before, being that she was arguably one of the most powerful women in Plymouth Colony's history. And just as a refresher, Plymouth Colony was settled in 1620 by the Pilgrims, and lots of celebrations going on this year to celebrate the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower, I'm sure as you well know. And it lasted until 1692 when it was absorbed by Massachusetts Bay. And the reason why I likely hadn't heard of Penelope before is that she, like most other women, uh, were overlooked by historians for a long time until fairly recently historians haven't really considered women's experiences worthy of study because they largely took place outside the public sphere. And also Penelope, uh, unlike Penelope, like most of her female contemporaries, didn't leave behind much in the way of writings. Unlike Mehitable Coit, the subject of my first book, there's no juicy diary to tell us what her days were like. So um, I had to look at other sources. There are some archival sources, but what really stands out in Penelope's life is this wealth of what's called material culture, generally anything made or used by people. And in Penelope's case, these range from um, her portrait to former personal possessions, um, homes that she lived in, and archaeological artifacts. And when combined with traditional archival records, these, uh, these sources really provide a full picture of Penelope's life, but also the, also the lives of other women at the time. 
So I'm going to back up and just give you a brief biography of Penelope's early years. She was born in 1633 in a village about 70 miles outside of London called Bewers. And she was born into a family that was landed gentry. So on her father's side, her father was Herbert Pelham, and he was descended from various monarchs. And in fact, his great-great-grandmother was Mary Boleyn, Anne Boleyn's sister, who was actually involved with King Henry VIII before uh, the unfortunate Anne got involved. Um, and on Penelope's mother's side, her mother was Jemima Waldegrave, and the Waldegraves were involved in British government for centuries. They were a very powerful family. And when Penelope moved to the colonies, she had relatives that were not only leading settlers of Massachusetts Bay, but early governors of Virginia and even uh, the Baron de la War, after whom Delaware was named. So I'm going to show you some pictures of Penelope's family homes. So this is Smallbridge Hall. This is her mother's family home. It's actually not as big as it used to be. It used to be a lot bigger. Um, it's obviously a very impressive dwelling. It's surrounded by a moat. And um, Queen Elizabeth I is supposed to have stayed there. She, she did stay there, actually. Um, so when I was fortunate enough to visit a few years ago, um, it just so happened that the, both this property and Ferriers, which is Penelope's home, were undergoing construction. So they were, the rooms were largely stripped of furnishings. And so we could really get an idea of what the rooms looked like during her time period. The rooms really uh, can, can still contain a lot of the original architectural features. So here's Queen Elizabeth's room, um, preserved very well. And then this is Ferriers. This is Penelope's birthplace. So obviously it's not as grand as Smallbridge, but it was undoubtedly a very impressive home for the time period. It actually extends back pretty far. You don't see in this picture, but it was a large dwelling. And this, this painting done as recently as 1962 shows uh, the, the huge landscape that surrounded uh, Ferrier. So this is the family's land, and it's a constant reminder of the wealth that they have. Some original architectural features at Ferrier's. And this is a, a really unique uh, dwelling that has survived. It's a, called a manorial courthouse. dates from the 1500s. It was used by the Waldegraves to conduct uh, local court cases. And I neglected to mention that the Ferriers was brought to the marriage by Penelope's mother, Jemima Waldegrave. So the, the family is obviously very successful living in England. And yet, when Penelope is about five, her father decides he wants to relocate to New England. He is a merchant adventurer investor in Massachusetts Bay, and he's also a devout Puritan. So he uproots the family and takes them, and they, uh, they settle in Cambridge. So it's Penelope, her four siblings, and her father. Her mother apparently dies on the voyage. But uh, in short order, Herbert Pelham acquires lots of property in Cambridge and elsewhere. Uh, and he becomes prominent in local civic affairs. He also becomes Harvard College's first treasurer. And he marries, remarries shortly within arriving in Cambridge. Um, despite his success in the New World, he decides after eight years he needs to return to England because he has to tend to some property, some family property issues. And uh, so they, Penelope is about 13 at this time. Her brother Nathaniel is going to stay behind to attend Harvard. 
But Penelope stays behind too, and it's not exactly clear why she stayed behind. Herbert Pelham did intend to return to New England with his family, but never did. But in any case, at this point, Penelope probably goes to live with her aunt, another Penelope, uh, who is the, the sister of her father. And this Penelope is married to Richard Bellingham, who's a very powerful man in Massachusetts Bay Colony. He serves as governor uh, several times. And so our Penelope takes up residence in their, man their mansion house that was located on uh, Tremont Street. And there she really is exposed to people and ideas that broaden her world. We don't know what her education was like, but it appears to have been a very good one because later writings show a facility with language and familiarity with the law. So perhaps she, um, she absorbed some of her brother Nathaniel's Harvard education. But we do know that at some point Penelope meets Josiah Winslow. So this is Josiah and his father, Edward. And Edward is a, a pilgrim. He arrives on the Mayflower. He's a very prominent person in Plymouth Colony. He serves as governor of Plymouth Colony himself. Uh, perhaps Penelope met Josiah through her brother Nathaniel because Josiah does attend Harvard, although he doesn't graduate. And we do know that uh, Edward Winslow and Penelope's father were well known to each other. So in any case, we have these three portraits and they were likely painted in 1651 because Edward is holding a letter, as you can see. It's, you can't see the date, but it's dated 1651. And wonderfully, it's also inscribed from your loving wife, Susanna. And this is Susanna White Winslow, who herself was a Mayflower passenger. She had actually come over with her husband, William White, who died uh, soon after the Mayflower landed, as did Edward Winslow's wife. And their marriage, Edward and Susanna's marriage, was the first in Plymouth Colony. So I want to talk to you for a minute about religion, because we know that uh, Plymouth was settled by the pilgrims, they were separatists. They wanted to separate from the Church of England, whereas Massachusetts was settled by the Puritans. They wanted to purify the Church of England. The separatists were a more radical group, which is why they had far fewer adherents. But both groups really had a very similar religious outlook. They thought that people should have a direct uh, relationship with God as mediated through scripture. And they just, they had shared a lot of the same outlooks um, in their approach to spirituality. So we think of Puritans and pilgrims as being sober, uh, serious, dour people. And so when you look at these portraits, you, you know, they probably confirm what you think of as Puritans and pilgrims because Josiah and Edward are dressed in black. Well, black was actually the most expensive dye to make, and it was a very fashionable color. So by dressing in black, they were consciously exhibiting their wealth. We also have uh, the gold tassels that Josiah and Edward are wearing. They have, uh, and Edward has uh, gold buttons and these starched white linen collars, and Edward has these white uh, linen cuffs. So this is. This may not look like it to us, but it's actually an ostentatious display of wealth. So I want to now address Penelope's portrait. So she's there in the middle, and I, uh, to, to put this time period in perspective, this is 1651, approximately when she and Josiah are married in London. England is just finishing up 
uh, the Civil War. So this war had pitted the followers of King Charles I, who were known as royalists, against the supporters of Parliament, uh, who was, and these forces were led by Oliver Cromwell. And Penelope's family and Josiah's family were strong supporters of Cromwell and the parliamentarians. And yet we have Penelope dressed very similarly to the this is Queen Henrietta Maria, the wife of King Charles I, who has been executed in 1649. And this is Charles I's daughter, Princess Mary Stuart. And so if you take a look at the, starting with Henrietta Maria, who is actually a, a fashion icon for her time, um, Penelope's clothing looks very similar to hers, the colors, the shimmering fabrics, and as far as Princess Mary Stuart goes, the, Penelope's hairstyle is very similar, as is her head covering and her gold choker necklace. So she is she's consciously modeling herself after the highest echelon of society by dressing this way. And there are very few women's portraits that date from the 1600s in New England. Um, those portraits that do exist show women, wealthy women dressed uh, according to their status, but their clothing is more modest. Um, in Penelope's case, her hair is uncovered, which is, for Puritan New England, would have been very unusual. And her, as you can see, her dress is kind of draped off her shoulders. So I think it's a little rebellious that she chose to dress in this way. Um, so the three portraits of Penelope, Josiah, and Edward are shipped back to Marshfield, Massachusetts, where the family lives, the Winslows live. And they, the portraits descend through the family until the 1880s when they're donated to Pilgrim Hall Museum in Plymouth. And you might be familiar with Pilgrim Hall Museum. It has the largest collection of pilgrim belongings in the country. It's also uh, uh, the longest continuously operating museum in the country. But in any case, the, the portraits have long been uh, displayed nearby a, uh, well, there are several Winslow possessions at Pilgrim Hall. There are a number of Winslow possessions, which is wonderful. But the most iconic possession belonging to Penelope is this shoe. So it's, it was formerly a salmon pink color. It's silk. It has this very ornate silk on it, a, a silver silk lace. And so the story that came down with the shoe uh, was that it was worn by Penelope at her wedding. And the shoes were actually passed down through the family and supposedly worn by subsequent generations of family brides. They were separated in the early 1800s. Uh, and one of the shoes went to eventually went to Pilgrim Hall. The other shoe is still in the family. And a big stir was caused as recently as the 1990s when the owner of the Second shoe discovered its mate's existence at Pilgrim Hall and arranged for both shoes to be exhibited together. But there's been even more of a shakeup in the interpretation of the shoe with the recent revelation that this was actually a man's shoe. So uh, when I first started working on Penelope, I was talking to the then curator of Pilgrim Hall Museum, Stephen O'Neill. He happened to mention that a British footwear historian had been at Pilgrim Hall and she mentioned in passing that she thought that the wedding slipper was actually a man's shoe. So of course I had to follow up on this and I obtained ex um, 
expert opinions from three different curators, they all confirmed that this was a man's shoe. So apparently salmon pink was a universally popular color in England at this time. Men were also wearing high heels. In fact, uh, men were the first people to wear high heels, but that's another story for another day. Um, and so the, the story just got mixed up down the line that these were Penelope's shoes. And so I think it, this story reflects a number of uh, themes in Penelope's story. One is that her, hers, like the story of many Amer early American women, is an ever-evolving story as new artifacts and information and interpretations crop up. And also, we, a lesson is to be learned here is that we need to you know, not bring our contemporary notions of gender-based uh, ideas uh, in fashion, et cetera, um, in behavior when we look at historical materials. But um, just as a, as a footnote, sorry, um, I didn't mean to say that, uh, the, the interpretation at Pilgrim Hall has really been um, a little topsy-turvy now because the docents are very unhappy that this um, romantic story of the wedding slipper is actually, it was probably actually Penelope's husband's indoor slipper. So uh, this is just showing you on the left is um, some other formerly salmon pink men's high heels at the Victoria and Albert Museum. Obviously they're not as high style, but it's just a, a similar example. And then to the right is a pair of Josiah's baby shoes that are displayed near the Winslow shoe at Pilgrim Hall, which is kind of a fun juxtaposition. And then over here we have a, a bag that is at Pilgrim Hall that is supposed to have been made by Penelope. It's a four inches by four inches, it's a small bag, and the timing of the manufacturer of this bag does coincide with the popularity of them in England. They were often made to give as gifts. Um, they were often made to give as gifts to both men and women, so Penelope, if she did make it, may have given it to Josiah as a gift. Um, the story that came down with the bag is that Penelope beaded it while on a sea voyage. And this is a great story, and I hope it's true, but there's no way to confirm whether or not that's true. And then on the right we have a what's known as a bodkin. And this is a blunt-ended needle. It's silver, it has holes at either end, and it has the initials PW. It descended through the family and the dating is right, so it very likely was Penelope's. And this is a very, um, it's a practical item that links her to other women of the time because, it, and it's also an intimate item because she would be using it to get dressed. She'd be using it to lace up, um, lace up her clothing as did other women of the time, although most women of the time didn't have silver bodkins. And it also um, connects uh, Penelope to the topic of motherhood because at the time there were no maternity clothes. Women just let, took in their clothing and let it out um, during pregnancies. And so to the topic of Penelope and motherhood, she actually had a hard time um, having living children. Her first surviving child wasn't born until 1664, so about 13 years after her marriage, a daughter named Elizabeth, and then her, her second surviving child, her son named Isaac, was born in 1671, so about 20 years after her marriage. So Penelope and Josiah get married in London, we believe, and then they return to Marshfield. So they probably begin by living with Susanna White Winslow, uh, Josiah's mother, 
Edward has gone over to England in 1646 on Plymouth Colony business, and he never returns. He dies at sea in 1655, uh, so four years after the marriage. And at this point, Josiah inherits his estate. At some point thereafter, uh, he and Penelope build a house right nearby Susanna's, and we're very fortunate because a number of archaeological excavations have been done at this site, and there are literally thousands of artifacts, some as small as just you know, small pieces of pottery, but these archaeological artifacts can really help round out the picture of Penelope's life, supplementing the information we have from the archival records and the possessions that have survived. So this is uh, an outline done by archaeologists of the Winslow family home, and it has this porch, which is interesting. This was a feature that was favored by the gentry in the 1500s in England, and a lot of the more elite settlers in uh, New England brought it over, including Governor John Winthrop. They would put a porch on their house to distinguish their house as being you know, a, a fancier place. We have the larger hall, which is where most of the daily living took place, and then across from it, the parlor, which is the more formal room, which is where um, entertaining would have been placed, but also uh, the, that Josiah would have conducted commercial, military, and government business. So Josiah really kicks off his career as soon as he and Penelope are married. So he, in the 1650s alone, he becomes the leader of Plymouth Colony's military. He succeeds Miles Standish, and he becomes involved in government, ultimately becoming governor of Plymouth Colony in 1673. And he's also uh, conducting a lot of commercial enterprise from the home. And homes at this time were a lot different than they are now. Now we think of homes as private spaces. But during this time, there was not that delineation between public and private because people were conducting their businesses from their homes. And you may have heard the term deputy husband, which refers to a woman's ability to act in her husband's stead uh, and conduct business on his behalf. Because the business is being conducted from home, wives are uh, acknowledged to be very familiar with their husband's business. And so if their husband is, if he's ill or if he's away, Men coming to the house to conduct business with the husband are happy to deal with the wife because they know that the wives are informed. And in Penelope's case, this has takes on added uh, meaning because this is where Josiah is conducting government business too. So people, she she begins her life in Plymouth Colony with a lot of power because of her background, but also people coming to the house know that they have to, that they need her influence on their behalf. So that because she can mediate messages given to Josiah, she can control access. He's traveling a lot on government business and on uh, his own commercial business. So she's in charge of the estate a lot, and people know this. Um, there's also a good example of just on a, a more regular scale of the way that women are involved in, uh, oh, no, oh, I forgot to mention, just not just men coming to uh, to seek Penelope's favor on their behalf, but women coming on behalf of their husbands. And so we have these communities and these connections between women of the time that we don't often look at. Um, so Penelope, uh, as I said, she is, you know, she's conducting, oh, what was, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. So this is what I was going to say about average women. There is a deed, and there are many deeds, um, that are witnessed by women from this time period, not just in Plymouth, but all over New England. Because 
as I said, the government business is being conducted from the home. Women are in the home, and they're witnessing these deeds. And there's uh, one where Penelope and uh, another woman, who may have been her friend visiting, they both witness it. And on the surface, it looks like just uh, an ordinary deed having to do with the maintenance of a bridge. But it's actually an important part of colony infrastructure. And it just shows how women are involved on all of these different levels on helping support the development of this colony in New England. Um, this is just a, a diagram of the upper uh, level of the house. It was actually three levels, but we can see the, the hall chamber, which is obviously the largest chamber in the inventory taken following Josiah's death. It mentions that the widow's bed is in the hall chamber. So clearly this is the, the master bedroom. This is one of the many possessions at Pilgrim Hall, the, this very stately chair. Uh, you can imagine, it would have had a cushion on it, but you can imagine that Josiah sitting in this chair being very authoritative and uh, the impression that he would have give, given to visitors. And these are two very evocative items. The, the plate, it's a Delft plate. It speaks to the level of transatlantic trade that's going on during this time period across the uh, New England seaboard. And we tend to think of the pilgrims in particular is being isolated and insular, but it's not the case. There was in Boston, obviously, but also in smaller seaport areas, there's lots of trade going on, and so people are getting, uh, all of these goods are coming in, and ideas, and people, and so they, the worlds were broader than we imagine. And then uh, on the other side is this wonderful cradle, and so this was brought over, supposedly brought over on the Mayflower by Susanna White Winslow. Well, she was Susanna White at the time. She was pregnant on the voyage, gave birth to her son Peregrine, who was the per first pilgrim child born in Plymouth Colony. And so she supposed, is supposed to have brought over this uh, cradle. It did descend through the family and may perhaps have been used by Penelope. So. Now to get to the archaeology. So as I said, this, the artifacts really help round out the picture of the information we get from, from written records and from the other material culture. So we think of Penelope as a, possibly as a, as a seamstress if she made that purse, um, and also her interest in clothing. And speaking to that, this is a very fine bone needle case that still contains the pins, which is really great. And uh, all of these um, artifacts are at Plymouth Plantation. Uh, scissors, now these, you know, we can't say definitively these were Penelope scissors. They date from the period of her residency on the property. Uh, they may have belonged to another woman at the time, but there's a good chance that some of these items did belong to Penelope. So scissors, again, it's like the bodkin. It's a more prosaic item. All women would have used scissors, whether they were doing fine embroidery or just daily mending. Now, does anyone have an idea what this item is? I had no idea. It has to do with clothing. It's, a, it's called a goff ring, and it's used to iron ruffles. So it's a very specific, had a very specific function, and obviously would be used by people who would, could afford to have ruffles on their clothing. So, uh, and then we have here, this is just a knife, um, just one of many artifacts that speak to the family's dining habits. There were knives and there were spoons found on the property, uh, no forks because they weren't widely in use in New England yet. Uh, but there are also things as 
you know, seemingly mundane, but, but can provide interesting insight as animal bones that tell us what they ate. So they were good English people, they ate lots of beef. Then we have uh, some items that give insight into family life and childhood. So this is a silver whistle with the initials EW. And we're not sure who it belonged to, but it may have belonged to Penelope and Josiah's daughter, Elizabeth. And then we just have this marble here, which is great. Now, also on the property, we have lots of native artifacts that predate the Winslow's residence, because of course there was a native presence in New England for a very, very long time before the settlers came. And these, the native artifacts are wonderful because they give insight into the native experience where you know, we don't have a lot of, inf we don't have a lot of records that can give an unbiased look into the native history. Because the written records that do exist, many of them are biased because they're written by the colonists. But we also have artifacts that speak to this native I mean, colonist exchange of technologies and information and materials. And so, for example, there are uh, a lot of sites in Plymouth, the former Plymouth colony. There have been many excavations done there and uh, ongoing now that provide lots of information, but there's evidence that uh, settlers were using native-made pots in addition to the European dishware that they find. But also here we have, these are fragments from kettles that were used in trade with the natives. So the colonists would exchange brass and copper kettles in exchange for, say, furs with the natives. And the natives would sometimes break apart the kettles and use the pieces of metal for different purposes. So for jewelry or for uh, projectile points. And then we have, this is a wonderful spoon for many reasons. Uh, for one thing, you can tell it was owned by a right-handed person because of the pattern of wear on the left-hand side. But also, it's a seal-top spoon. So it was oddly used not just for eating, but for sealing correspondence with wax. And then these items here are, they, these were formerly parts of spoons. Uh, the bowl has been removed by a native person, and they have sharpened the point, uh, made it, sharpened it into a point to use for a tool. So uh, just all of this great information coming from the archaeological artifacts. So speaking to the colonists and the natives' relationship, so we know about Edward Winslow's uh, fabled relationship with Massasoit. He had this great friendship with Massasoit. He was also uh, a, a diplomat, and he was interested in native ways and languages and really tried to learn a lot about them. By the time the second generation comes around and Josiah is governor, as I said, he becomes governor in 1673, things have changed dramatically because so many more colonists have moved in and they're infringing on native lands. Also, there's more pressure on the natives to become Christianized. And so all of these tensions ultimately develop into King Philip's War in 1675. And King Philip's War is the defining moment of Josiah's governorship. Um, it's a very devastating conflict. It per capita remains the deadliest war in American history. So, um, and it's it, it's a very it's a fascinating war, a very uh, very bloody and destructive war. Um, so Penelope, interestingly enough, is connected to two pivotal events that have been pointed to by historians as leading to the outbreak of uh, King Philip's War. And these events in Penelope's involvement in them haven't really be, been looked at. One dates to 1662, so before Josiah is governor, 
At this time, he's the military commander of Plymouth. He's uh, in Massasoit has passed away, and Massasoit's son, Wamsutta, who's also known as Alexander, has become sachem of the, of the Wampanoag Indians. And so Josiah is sent to bring Wamsutta to, back to Plymouth to answer, answer charges that he has sold land contrary to the terms of a treaty, and also that he's conspiring with the Narragansetts against the colonists. So when Josiah meets up with Wamsutta, he's with his wife, Widamu, who herself is a sachem. And they're also with a number of other family members. So this big group accompanies Josiah. They agree to go to Plymouth. But on the way, they need to spend the night at Penelope and Josiah's home. And so it's just really fascinating to think of this large native contingent at Penelope's home. And obviously, she had had natives there before. But to have this, this particular set of circumstances uh, one hopes that she extended the same type of hospitality to them that she did to her typical uh, visitors, especially those of high status. And thinking of Penelope's uh, connection or relation to Widamu, who is, as I said, is a sachem in her own right, she has political power in her community. Penelope's power is, is more informal. And so in the grand scheme of things, Widamu would have been the more powerful person in that in that meeting, uh, Penelope wouldn't have recognized it as such, though. Uh, so it's just all of these uh, cultural interactions that it's really fascinating to think about. So the visit, unfortunately, does not go well because Wamsutta becomes ill. And Josiah sends for the doctor, who unfortunately may have made the situation worse. It's decided that Wamsutta needs to go home um, to recover, and he, he agrees he'll return at some point to Plymouth, but he's just so ill that everyone agrees he needs to go home. Unfortunately, shortly thereafter, he dies. And it's believed that by his brother, Medicom, who then becomes sachem of the Indians, he's also known as Philip, and by Wamsuda's wife, Widamu, that uh, Wamsuda has been poisoned, perhaps by the doctor or Josiah. So then fast forward to late 1674, Josiah is governor, and an Indian man named John Sassaman comes to the house. Now, John Sassaman is a Harvard-educated Christian Indian. He has ties to both the native communities and the colonists. And he comes specifically to warn Josiah of Philip's plans to attack. And again, we can imagine Penelope you know, did she have any interaction with John Sassaman? She certainly would have discussed the nature of his visit with Josiah afterwards. But in, unfortunately, Josiah does not believe John Sassaman uh, because he's had similar warnings and they haven't come to anything. So uh, John Sassaman has said he fears for his life. He's taking a great risk in coming to, to Josiah. Josiah still doesn't believe him. Um, John Sassaman leaves, and within a few weeks, his body is recovered, and it's believed he was murdered by agents of Philip. So three Native men with ties to Philip are arrested, tried, convicted, and executed, and within a very short time, King Philip's war breaks out. So Josiah, knowing that Philip has this personal animosity toward him because of what happened with Wamsutta, um, Take, makes arrangements for Penelope and their two children, their 11-year-old daughter Elizabeth and their four-year-old son Isaac, to go take refuge with Josiah's sister Elizabeth, who's up in Salem. Um, she's married to George Corwin. 
And so Penelope and her children, like so many people on both sides of the conflict, becomes a war refugee. And we know that she had a difficult time with this experience. Uh, there is a letter, this, a wonderful letter written to her by Plymouth Colony Governor, uh, sorry, Plymouth Colony Secretary Nathaniel Morton, who is a friend of hers. And the, the letter is undated. It's actually here at the collections of the Boston Athenaeum. And it's a wonderful letter because it's trying to help Penelope with the spiritual crisis that she's undergoing. And it, it's, as I said, it's undated, but it appears to be from this period. And so this, this letter is just so wonderful because it provides insight into her spiritual life, her interior life. It's a real difference from all of this, many of these other pieces of, uh, these other types of sources that testify to her status as a wealthy, um, self-confident, and elite person. This really shows her vulner vulnerability and, and uh, gives some insight into her, her interior life. So the family is sent up to Salem, as I said. Josiah writes this letter to uh, Massachusetts Governor John Leverett, and he tells him about the outbreak of King Philip's War because it's happened down in Plymouth Colony. And he mentions that it's a very dramatic letter, that he sent his family away for safety, that he, is, um, he has fortified his house, and that he will hold, he will hold his house and as long as a man will stand by him. And so what's really um, eerie is that there are, and it's, it actually provides such an impact that complements the archival record, is that there are traces at the home site the Winslow home site that bear out Josiah's writings in this letter. So for example, there are uh, post holes showing that there were fortifications built around the house. Um, there are a number of pipe stems dating from this period that indicate they were likely left by soldiers on guard. There are remnants of bullets and guns. So there's some bullets, pieces of guns um, that testify to Josiah's ample military defenses. Um, and then also testifying to his interest in high style are things like this, um, the high style bridle and bit here, and then these military buckles here. So in any case, the, the war comes to an end within about a year. 1676, Penelope returns home and the children return home. And the evidence is that she helps Josiah restore his reputation with King Charles II following this conflict. So the, as we said, King Charles I had been executed. Oliver Cromwell's uh, parliamentary government had taken control. And then by 1660, the monarchy is restored in England and Charles I's son, Charles II, is on the throne. And he wants to know how did matters come to a pass between the colonists and the natives that this horrible war broke out. So Josiah writes a report to King Charles II, and he also arranges for King Philip's military regalia. So Philip has been killed at the end of the conflict. And there are these um, fabulous wampum belts and some other uh, pieces that Josiah arranges to send to England. But there, Penelope's hand in this is clearly seen because they are going to be sent to her brother Waldegrave, who has uh, inherited the family home farriers back in England. And so unfortunately, Waldegrave appears never to have fulfilled this trust because the report uh, in the wampum belts never arrived to, at court. So uh, there's, there's actually a contemporary relevance to these wampum belts because 
There's a Wampanoag scholar, Paula Peters, who is currently searching for these wampum belts, and she's also involved in a larger scale wampum project. Um, she's involved in an, ex an exhibit that will be traveling the US and the UK, and so there's hope that perhaps the wampum belts may come to light. So this is a later a depiction of King Philip. It's not accurate. Um, it was done 100 years after his death. It's an engraving by Paul Revere, but you can see this very significant wampum belt he's wearing. So King Philip's war has taken a, a terrible toll on Josiah's health, and he dies in 1680. And Penelope, we know, had a, a tough time with his death. There's another letter to her from Secretary Nathaniel Morton who, that survives, consoling her on the loss of Josiah. This one's at the Mass Historical Society. But she is supposed to have commissioned this mourning ring on his behalf to commemorate his passing. It was, it's a gold ring and supposedly contains a lock of Josiah's hair. You can see it peeking through. It was done by the Boston gold and silversmith John Coney. Unfortunately, there's no inscription on it um, testifying that it was done to commemorate Josiah, so we can't be 100% sure the dating is correct and it did pass through, through the family, so there is a good chance that it was. Um, we don't have any letters between Penelope and Josiah that have survived, but we do know from Josiah's will that he had great respect and affection for her. So at this time, widows were typically given a third of their husband's um, personal property and a, th and a third life interest in their husband's real estate. So Penelope is made sole executrix of Josiah's estate. She's given broad jurisdiction over all of the property. And Josiah is, he's clearly, um, he feels that heredity and lineage and property are very important, and yet he entrusts these decisions to Penelope. So this is a good reflection that they have this a, a trusting relationship, and also that she was very capable of handling the estate in his absence when he was traveling so much on government and military business. So Penelope recovers from the loss of Josiah. She lives the final 23 years of her life as a widow, and she continues to raise and educate their children. She oversees the family properties, and amazingly, she engages in some legal battles over family inheritances, one of which uh, she's dealing with at seven years old, right up until the time of her death. So she leaves this, she does leave this legacy. Um, we're not sure what happened to her house. Her and Josiah's house no longer stands, uh, as neither does the house belonging to Edward and Susanna. But this house, built by Penelope's son Isaac around 1699, uh, does still stand. It's a historic house museum. Penelope died in 1703, so there's a, there, there's a story that her house burned down in the late 1600s. So it's possible she lived the final years of her life in this house. Um, in any case, there are two final uh, material possessions that uh, material objects that really speak to Penelope's story. One is a, a grave marker that just refers to her as Penelope, the wife of Governor Josiah Winslow. Um, no other distinguishing individual information about her other than that. And then this commemorative stone uh, put up in the 20th century to mark the site of Josiah in Penelope's home and Edward in Susanna's home. It doesn't even refer to Penelope or Susanna at all. It just says it's 
marking the site of the of governors Edward and Josiah. So I think it's really emblematic of how women's history has been covered up over the years. And so in Penelope's uh, lifetime, she was widely respected. She continued to be honored by her descendants, although she was forgotten, you know, as generations passed, she was forgotten by the general public. But as, as shown, her descendants continued to honor her memory and uh, her, a number of her descendants actually remained loyal to the British crown during the American Revolution. And I think there are direct ties to their sense of connection to the British aristocracy um, brought to them by Penelope and their, you know, just their sense of their position in society that led them to remain loyalists. Um, time goes by and Penelope's memory is really honored by her female descendants. There are, for generations, uh, they continue to name their sons Pelham and their daughters Penelope. And in fact, there are still Penelopes out there. Uh, and then they also safeguard the family history and the fa family heirlooms. And this is really common of women be uh, over the years because women have traditionally been the ones, they didn't inherit the land, they inherited the things. And so they, they not only preserve their own family history by safeguarding these things, but they're larger pieces of the historical record. And so in conclusion, I just want to say that I think that combining traditional written sources with this material culture can provide lots of insight not only into the life of an elite person like Penelope, but also more ordinary people who left an impact on their society. And I think that there are many more important, significant, but overlooked stories that we need to recover, and it's really up to us to find the way to tell those stories.